Chapter Twenty Six of the Second Latchkey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Second Latchkey by Charles Norris and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Twenty Six, The Three Words. Night was generally far away long before Annesley was up in the morning, and often he did not come in till evening. She thought that on Easter Day, however, he would perhaps not go far. She half expected that he would linger about the house or sit reading on the veranda, and she could not resist the temptation to put on one of the dresses he had liked in England. It was a little passe and old-fashioned, but he would not know this. What he might remember was that she had worn it at Valley House. And the wish to say something, as if accidentally, about the flaming miracle of the cactus hedge, was as persistent in her heart as the desire of a crocus to push through the earth to the sunshine on a spring morning. She did not know whether the wish would survive the meeting with her husband. She thought that would depend as much upon him as upon her mood. But luncheon time came, and night did not appear. Annesley lunched alone in her gray frock. Even on days when night was with her, and they sat through their meals formally, it was the same as if she were alone. For they spoke little, and each was in the habit of bringing a book to the table. But she had not meant it to be so on Easter Day. Even if she did not speak of the blossoming of the cactus, she had planned to show Knight that she was willing to begin a conversation. To talk at meals would be a way out of treating him like a dog. The pretty frock and the good intention were wasted. Late in the afternoon, she heard from one of the line riders whom she happened to see. That something had gone wrong with a windmill which gave water to the pumps for the cattle, and that her husband was attending to it. He's a natural-born engineer," said the man, whose business as line rider was to keep up the wire fencing from one end of the ranch to the other. I don't know how much he knows, but I know what he can do. Queer thing, ma'am. There don't seem to be much that Mike Donaldson can't do. Annesley smiled to hear Knight called Mike by one of his employees. She knew that he was popular, but never before had she felt personal pleasure in the men's tributes of affection. Today she felt a thrill. Her heart was warm with the spring and the miracle of the cactus hedge, and memories of impetuous, seemingly impetuous words of last night. If she could have seen night, she would have spoken of his allegory, and that small opening might have let sunlight into their darkness. But he did not come even to dinner, and tired of waiting. And weary from a sleepless night, she went to bed. Next morning, a man arrived who wished to buy a bunch of Donaldson's cattle, which were beginning to be famous. He stayed several days, and when he left, Knight had business at the copper mine, business that concerned the sinking of a new shaft, which took him back and forth nearly every day for a week. By and by, the cactus flowers began to fade, and Annesley had never found an opportunity of mentioning them. Or what they might signify. When she met Knight, his manner was as usual, kind, unobtrusive, slightly stiff, as though he were embarrassed, though he never showed signs of embarrassment with any one else. She could hardly believe that she had not dreamed those words overheard in the moonlight. Week after week slipped away. The one excitement at Las Cruces Ranch was the fighting across the border, the great scare at El Paso. And the stories of small yet sometimes tragic raids made by bands of cattle stealers upon American ranches, which touched the Rio Grande, 
the water was low. This made private marauding expeditions easier, and the men of Las Cruces Ranch were prepared for anything. One night in May there was a sandstorm, which as usual played strange tricks with Annesley's nerves. She could never grow used to these storms, and the moaning of the hot wind seemed to her a voice that wailed for coming trouble. Knight had been away on one of his motoring expeditions to the Oregon Mountains, and though he had told the Chinese boy that he would be back for dinner, he did not come. Doors and windows were closed against the blowing sand, but they could not shut out the voice of the wind. After dinner Annesley tried to read a new book from the library at El Paso, but between her eyes and the printed page would float the picture of a small, open automobile and its driver lost in clouds of yellow sand. Why should she care? The man was used to roughing it. He liked adventures. He was afraid of nothing, and nothing ever hurt him. But she did care. She seemed to feel the sting of the sharp grains of sand on cheeks and eyes. She was sitting in her own room, as she was accustomed to do in the evening if she were not out on the veranda, the pretty room which Knight had extravagantly made possible for her, with chintzes and furnishings from the best shops in El Paso. On this evening, however, she set both doors wide open, one which led into the living room, another leading into a corridor or hall. She could not fail to hear her husband when he came, even if he left his noisy car at the garage and walked to the house. A traveling clock on the mantelpiece, Constance Annesley Seton's gift, struck nine. The girl looked up at the first stroke, wondering if serious accidents were likely to happen in sandstorms, and before the last note had ended she heard steps in the patio. "'He has come,' she thought, with a throb of relief which shamed her. But the step was not like nights. It was hurried and nervous, and, as she told herself this, there sounded a loud knock at the door. There was an electric bell, which Knight had fitted up with his own hands, but it was not visible at night. No one except herself could hear this knocking, for the servants' quarters were at the far end of the bungalow. A little frightened, recalling stories of cattle thieves and things they had done, Annesley went into the hall. "'Who is there?' she cried, her face near the closed door, which locked itself in shutting. If a man's voice, the voice of a stranger, should reply in Mex, or with a foreign accent, the girl did not intend to let him in. A man's voice did reply, but neither in Mex nor with a foreign accent. It said, "'My name is Paul Van Vreck. Open quickly, please. I may be followed.' Annesley's heart jumped, but without hesitation she pulled back the latch, and as she opened the door a rush of sand-laden wind wrenched it from her hand. She staggered away as the door swung free, and there was just time to see a tall, thin figure slip in like a shadow, before the light of the hanging lamp blew out. The girl and the newcomer were in the dark, save for a yellow ray that filtered into the hall from her room. But she saw him stoop to place a bag or bundle on the floor, then, pulling the door, too, against the wind, slammed it shut with a click. Having done this, the tall shadow bent to pick up what it had laid down. "'Thank you, Mrs. Donaldson, for letting me in,' said the most charming voice Annesley had ever heard, more charming even than Knight's. "'Evidently you've heard your husband mention me, or you might have kept me out there parlaying, if you're alone, for these are stirring times. "'Yes, I—I've heard you mentioned by—many people,' the girl answered, stammering like a nervous child. "'Won't you come in, into the living-room?' Not the room with the open door. That's mine. It's another, farther along the hall. 
I'm sorry, my husband's out. As she talked, she wondered at herself. She knew Van Vreck for a super thief. He did not steal with his own hands, but he commanded other hands to steal, and that was even worse. Or she had thought it worse in her husband's case, and for more than a year she had punished him for his sins. Yet here she was almost welcoming this man. She did not understand why she felt, even without seeing him except as a shadow, that she would find herself wishing to do whatever he might ask. It must be, she thought, the influence of his voice. She had heard Paul Van Vreck spoken of as an old man, but the voice was the voice of magnetic youth. He opened the door of the living room, and carrying his bundle, followed her as she entered. There was only one lamp in this room, a tall reading lamp with a green silk shade, which stood on a table, its heavy base surrounded by books and magazines. A good light for reading was thrown from under the green shade onto the table, but the rest of the room was of a cool green dimness, and looking up with irresistible curiosity at the face of her night visitor, it floated pale on the vague background, like a portrait by Whistler. It was unnaturally white, the girl thought, and, yes, it was old, but it was a wonderful face, and the eyes illuminated it, immense eyes, though deep-set and looking out of shadowed hollows under level brows, black as ink. Annesley had never seen eyes so like strange jewels, lit from behind. That simile came to her, and she smiled, for it was appropriate that this jewel expert should have jewels for eyes. They were dark topazes, and from them gazed the spirit of the man with a compelling charm. Under a rolled-back wave of iron-gray hair he had a broad forehead, high cheekbones, a pointed, prominent chin, a mouth both sweet and humorous, like that of some enchanting woman, but its sweetness was contradicted by a hawk nose. Had it not been for that nose he would have been handsome. I guessed by the startled tone of your voice when you asked, Who is there, that your husband was out? explained the shadow, now transformed by the light into an extremely tall, extremely thin man in grey travelling clothes. I had a moment of repentance at troubling a lady alone, but, you see, the case was urgent. He had carelessly tossed his Panama hat on to the table, but kept the black bag, which he now held out with a smile. Not a big bag, is it? And so common it wouldn't be likely to tempt a thief but it holds what is worth, if it has a price, about half a million dollars. "'Oh!' exclaimed Annesley. She looked horrified, and through the green gloom the old man read her face. "'I see,' he said, with a laugh in his young voice. "'You have heard the great secret. That makes another who knows. But I'm not afraid you'll throw me to the dogs. You wouldn't do that even if you weren't Donaldson's wife. Being his wife, you could not.' "'My husband has told me no secret about you, none at all,' the girl protested, defending Knight involuntarily. "'I beg you to believe that, Mr. Van Vreck.' "'I do believe it. If there's one thing I pride myself on, it's being a judge of character. That's why I've made a success of life. You wouldn't lie, perhaps not even to save the one you love best. I believe that he did not tell you the secret. Yet I'm certain you know it.' I suppose other discoveries you must have made gave you supernatural intuition. You guessed. Annesley did not answer. Yet she could not take her eyes from his. You needn't mind confessing, but I won't catechize you. I'll take it for granted that what Donaldson knows you know, not in detail, in the rough. In this bag are six gold images set with precious stones. 
They are of the time of the Incas, and they've been, up till now, the most precious things in Mexico. From now on they will be among the most precious things in Paul Van Vreck's secret collection. Some weeks ago I hoped that Donaldson would get them for me. He refused, so I had to go myself. I couldn't trust anyone else, though the only difficulty was getting to central Mexico with constitutionals raging on one side and federals on the other. A man promised to deliver the goods to my messenger. I've been bargaining over these things for years. But, as I said, Don wouldn't go, so I had to do the job myself. You see, Mrs. Donaldson, your husband is the only honest man I ever came across. Honest? the exclamation burst from Annesley's lips. Yes, honest is the word. I might add two others, true and loyal. Paul Van Vreck held her with his strange, straight look, commanding yet amused. That is the opinion, he added, after a pause, of a very old friend. It's worth its weight in gold images. The girl gave him no answer, but the effort of keeping her face under control made lips and eyelids quiver. May I sit down, Mrs. Donaldson? Van Vreck asked in a tone which changed to commonplaceness, as if his voice could ever be commonplace. I'm a fugitive, and have had a run for my money, so to speak. I'm seeking sanctuary. Also, I came in the hope of trying my eloquence on Donaldson. But now I've seen you, I will not do that. In future he's safe from me, I promise you. Oh, Annesley faltered, and then, thank you, came out grudgingly. How astonishing that she should thank Paul Van Vreck, the monster of wickedness and secrecy she had pictured, for sparing her husband, her husband whom he called loyal, true, whom she had called in her heart a thief. "'Do sit down,' she hurried on, hypnotized. "'Forgive my not asking you. I—I I understand,' he soothed her. "'I've taken advantage of you, sprung a surprise, as Don would say, and then turned on the tortures of the Inquisition. Aren't you going to sit? I can't, you know, if you don't.' "'I thought you might like something to eat,' the girl stammered. "'I could call our cook.' "'No, thank you,' replied Van Vreck. "'I'm peculiar in more ways than one. I never eat at night.' I live mostly on milk, water, fruit, and nuts. That's why I feel forty at seventy-two. I give out that I'm frail, an invalid, that I spent much time in nursing homes. This is my joke on a public which has no business to be curious about my habits. While it thinks I'm recuperating in a nursing home, I—but no matter, that won't interest you. When she had obediently sat down, her knees trembling a little, Van Vreck drew up a chair for himself and resting his arms on the table, leaned across it, gazing at the girl with a queer, humorous benevolence. "'How soon do you think your husband will come?' he asked abruptly. "'I don't know,' Annesley replied. "'He told our Chinese boy he'd be early. I suppose the sandstorm has delayed him.' "'No doubt. And you're worried?' "'No,' she answered, looking sidewise at Van Vreck, her face half turned from him. "'I don't think that I'm worried.' "'May I talk to you frankly till Don does come?' the old man asked. "'Certainly. I'll take you at your word. "'Mrs. Donaldson, when your husband called on me a year ago last spring in New York, "'he said nothing about you. "'I knew he'd married an English girl of good connections. "'Isn't that what you say on your side? "'And why he thought it would be wise to marry. "'But when he informed me that our association was to be ended, "'that nothing would induce him to continue it, I read between the lines.' I'm sharp at that. I knew as well as if he'd told me that he'd fallen in love with the girl, that she'd unexpectedly become the important factor in his life, and that, 
she'd found out a secret she'd never been meant to find out. His secret, and maybe mine. I realized by his face, the look in the eyes, the tone of the voice, or rather the tonelessness of the voice, what her finding out meant for Don. I read by all signs that she was making him suffer atrociously, and I owed that girl a grudge. She'd taken him from me. For the first time a power stronger than mine was at work, and yet, things being as they were, my hope of getting him back lay in her. "'What do you mean?' the question spoke itself. Annesley's lips felt cold and stiff. Her hands, nervously clasped in her lap, were cold, too, though the shut-up room had but lately seemed as hot as a furnace. "'I mean, if the girl behaved as I thought she would behave, as I think you have behaved, he might grow tired of her, and the cast-iron coat of virtue he'd put on to please her. He might grow tired of life on a ranch, if his wife made him eat ashes and wear sackcloth. That was my hope. Well, I sent a messenger to find out how the land lay a few weeks ago. "'The Countess de Santiago,' Annesley exclaimed. "'He told you? No, I saw her. I—by accident—it really was an accident—I heard things. He doesn't know. I believe he doesn't know I was there.' "'Perhaps that's just as well. Perhaps not. But if I were you I'd tell him when the right time comes. The Countess wrote me she'd had her journey in vain, and why.' She said, spitefully it struck me, that Don was bewitched by his wife, a cold, cruel creature with ice in her veins, who treated him like a dog. She said that to you, too? Yes, she said that to me. She seemed to gather the impression, but the dog stuck to his kennel. Nothing she could do would tempt him to budge. So I decided to call here myself, on the way back from Mexico. I couldn't delay the trip. A man was waiting for me and waiting quietly is difficult in Mexico just now. I got what I wanted, and crammed the lot into this bag, which cost me, at the outside, if I remember, five dollars. A good idea of mine for putting thieves off the track. They expect sane men to carry nightgowns and newspapers in such bags. I thought I'd managed so well that I'd put the gang who follow me about, generally, on spec, off the track. I speak Spanish well. I've been passing for a Mexican lawyer from Chihuahua. But today I caught a look from a pair of eyes in a train. I fancied I'd seen those eyes before, and the rest of the features. Perhaps I imagined it, but I don't think so. I trust my instinct. I advise you to. It's a tip. At El Paso I bought a ticket for Albuquerque. The eyes were behind me. I got into the train. So did eyes, and a friend with a long nose. Not into my car, however, so I was able to skip out again as the train was starting. Not a bad feat for a man of my age. I hope eyes and nose, and any other features that might have been with him, traveled on unsuspectingly. But I can't be sure. Instinct says they saw my trick and trumped it. I oughtn't to have come here, bringing danger to your house, Mrs. Donaldson. But I want to see Don, and I know he is afraid neither of man nor devil, afraid of nothing in the world except one woman. As for her, well, what I'd heard hadn't prepossessed me in her favor. I sacrificed her for the safety of my golden images and my talk with Dawn. But the sound of your voice behind the shut door broke the picture I'd made of that young woman. And when I saw you, well, Mrs. Donaldson, I've already told you I don't intend to exert my influence over your husband, though to do so was my principal object in coming. Even if I did, I believe yours would prove stronger. But if I could count on all my old power over him, I wouldn't use it now I have seen you. I adore myself and my specialties. 
But there must be an unselfish streak in me which shows in moments like this. I respect and admire it. You may treat Don like a dog, but he'd never be happy away from you. And I am fool enough to want him to be happy. This kicked dog of yours, madam, happens to be the finest fellow I ever knew or expect to know. You say I treat him like a dog, cried Annesley, roused to anger. But how ought I to treat him? He came into my life in a way I thought romantic as a fairy tale. It was a trick. A play got up to deceive me. I knew nothing of his life, but because of the faith he inspired I believed in him. No one except himself could have broken that belief. I would not have listened to a word against him. But when he thought I'd discovered something, the whole story came out. If I hadn't loved him so much to begin with, and put him on such a high pedestal, the fall wouldn't have been so great, wouldn't have broken my heart in pieces. But Don gave up everything pleasant in his life, and came down here to this God-forsaken ranch, a man like Michael Donaldson, with a few hundred dollars where he'd had thousands, all for you, said Van Vreck, and he's had no thought except for you and the ranch for more than a year. Yet apparently you haven't changed your opinion. By Jove, madam, you must somehow, through your personality and God knows what besides, have got a mighty hold on his heart, in the days when you loved him, or he wouldn't have stood this dog's life, this punishment too harsh for human nature to bear. Good Lord, how were you brought up? evidently not as a Christian. My father was a clergyman, said Annesley. There are many clergymen who have got as far from the light as the moon from the earth. I know more about Christianity myself than some of these narrow men with their cold Christs and tangled trinities. That is, I know all this on principle. I don't practice what I know, but that's my affair. Did Don ever excuse himself by mentioning the influence I brought to bear on him when he was almost a boy? No, breathed Annesley. He didn't excuse himself at all, except to tell me about his father and mother, and a vow he'd made to revenge them on society. It was like him not to whine for your forgiveness. He would never whine, the girl agreed, but she remembered that night of confession, when on his knees he had begged her to forgive, to grant him another chance, and she had refused. He had never asked again, and he had struggled alone for redemption. I haven't forgotten some early teachings which impressed me, said Paul Van Vreck. Christ made a remark about forgiving till seventy times seven. Did you forgive Donaldson four hundred and eighty-nine times, and draw the line at the four hundred and ninetieth? No, I never had anything to forgive him, till that one thing came out. But it was a very big thing. Too big. Too big, eh? There was another saying of Christ's about those without sin throwing the first stone. Of course, I'm sure you were without sin. But you look as if you might have had a heart, once. Oh, I had, I had! Tears streamed down Annesley's pale face, and she did not wipe them away. It's dead now, I think. Think again. Think of what the man is, what he's proved himself to be. He's twice as good now as one of your best saints of the church. He's purified by fire. You've got the face of an angel, Mrs. Donaldson, but in my opinion you're a wicked woman, unworthy of the love you've inspired. You speak to me cruelly, the girl said through her tears. I've been very unhappy. Not as unhappy as you've made Don by your cruelty. Good heavens, these tender girls can be more cruel when they set about punishing us than the hardest man. And to punish a fellow like that, by making him live in an ice-house, when you could have done anything with him by a little kindness. Don't I know that? I'm the sponsor for such sins as Don's committed. He was meant to be straight. 
but I got a hold of him through an agent, and caught his imagination when that wild vow was freshly branded on his heart or brain. I have the gift of fascination, Mrs. Donaldson. I know that better than I know most things. You feel it to-night, or you wouldn't sit there letting me tear your heart to pieces, what's left of your heart. And I've an idea there's a good deal more than you think, if you have the sense to patch the bits together. I have fascination, and I've cultivated it. Napoleon himself didn't study more ardently than I the art of winning men. I won Don. I appealed to the romance in him. I became his hero, and slowly I was able to make him my servant. Not much of my money or anything else has ever stuck to his hands. He's too generous, too impulsive, though I taught him it was necessary to control his impulses. What he did he did for love of me, till you came along and lit another sort of fire in his blood. I saw in one minute, when he called on me, what had happened to his soul. It's taken you more than a year to see, though he's lived for you and would have died for you. Great heaven, young woman, you ought to be on your knees before a miracle of God. Instead, you've mounted a marble pedestal and worshipped your own purity. Annesley bowed her head under a wave of shame. This man, of all others, had shown her a vision of herself as she was. It seemed that she could never lift her eyes. But suddenly, into the crying of the wind, a shot broke sharply, then another and another, till the sobbing wail was lost in a crackling fusillade. The girl leaped to her feet. Raiders! she gasped, or else— Paul Van Vreck sprang up also, his face paler, his eyes brighter than before. They've come after me, he said. Clever trick if they've bribed ruffians from over the border to cover their ends. The real errand's here inside this house. Annesley's heart faltered. You must hide, she breathed. I must save you somehow. Why should you save me? Van Vreck asked sharply. Why not think about saving yourself? Because I know Knight would wish to save you, she answered. I want to do what he would do. God help us, they're coming nearer. Take your bag, and I'll hide you in the cellar. There's a corner here behind some barrels. If they break in, I'll say, Brave girl, but they won't break in. How do you know? Your husband won't let them. Trust him as I do. He's not here. Do you think I told you a lie? Thank heaven he isn't here, or they'd kill him, and I could never beg him to forgive. She covered her face with her hands. The old man looked at her gravely. You don't understand what's happening, he said with a new gentleness. Don's out there now, defending you and his home. That's what the shooting means. Do you think those brutes would advertise themselves with their guns if they hadn't been attacked? With a cry, the girl rushed to the long window and began to unfasten it, but Van Vreck caught her hands. Stop, he commanded. Don't play the robber's own game for them. How do you know which is nearer the house, Don and his men, or the others? She stared at him, panting. Don and his men? she echoed. Yes, even if he were alone to begin with, I'll bet all I've got he roused every cowpuncher on the ranch with his first shot, and they'd be out with their guns like a streak of greased lightning. If you open that window with a light in the room, the wrong lot may get in and barricade themselves against Don and his bunch, to say nothing of what would happen to us. But Annesley waited for no more. She ran to the table and blew out the flame of the green-shaded lamp. Black darkness shut down like the lid of a box. But she knew the room as she knew her own features. Straight and unerring, she found her way back to the window. This time Van Vreck stood still while she opened it, and began noiselessly to undo the outside wooden shutters. As she pushed them apart, against the wind, a spray of sand dashed into her face and Van Vreck's, stinging their eyelids. 
but disregarding the pain the two passed out into the night. Clouds of blowing sand hid the stars, yet there was a faint glimmer of light which showed moving figures on horseback. Men were shouting, and with the bark of their guns fire spouted. Annesley rushed onto the veranda, but Van Vreck caught her dress. "'Stay where you are,' he ordered. "'Our side is winning. Don't you see, don't you hear, the fight's going farther away? That means the raid's failed. The skunks have got the worst of it. They're trying to get back to the river and across to their own country. There'll be some, I bet, who'll never see Mexico again.' "'But night,' the girl faltered, "'he may be shot.' "'He may. We've got to take the chances and hope for the best. He wouldn't leave the chase now if every door and window were open, and lit for him. Wait. Watch. That's the only thing to do.' She yielded to the detaining hand. All strength had gone out of her. She staggered a little, and fell back against Van Vreck's shoulder. He held her up strongly, as though he had been a young man. "'How can I live through it?' she moaned. "'You care for him after all, then?' she heard the calm voice asking in her ear. And she heard her own voice answer, "'I love him more than ever.' She knew that it was true, in spite of everything, and that she had never ceased to love him. It would be joy to give her life to save nights, with just one moment of breath to tell him that his atonement had not been vain. Away out of sight the chase went, but the watching eyes had time to see that not all the figures were on horseback. Some ran on foot, and some horses were riderless. As Van Vreck had said, there was nothing for him and for Annesley to do except to wait. They stood silent in the rain of sand, listening when there was nothing more to see. The shots were scattered and blurred by distance. Annesley realized how a heart may stop beating in the anguish of suspense. But at last, when the fierce wind, purring like a tiger, was the only sound in the night, there came a sudden padding of feet. A form stumbled up the veranda steps, and before she could cry out in her surprise, the girl recognized their Chinese servant. She had fancied him in bed, but she might have known he would be out. He had been running so fast that his breath came chokingly. "'What is it?' Annesley implored. The boy pointed, trying to speak. "'Bling Miss Donalback,' he gulped. "'Me come tell.' Annesley pushed past him, and springing down the steps ran blindly through the sand-cloud, taking the way by which the Chinese boy must have come home. Her mind pictured a procession carrying a dead man, or one grievously wounded, but at the cactus hedge she came upon three men, one in the center who limped, two who supported him on either side. "'Why, Anita!' exclaimed her husband's voice. "'Night!' she sobbed. It was the first time since Easter, a year ago, that she had given him the old name. "'Thank God you're alive!' "'If you thank him, so do I,' he answered, whether lightly or gravely she could not tell. His tone was controlled, as if to hide pain. "'It's all right. You mustn't worry any more.' Wish I could have sent you news sooner. I hoped you'd guess we were getting the upper hand when the shots died away. Coming home, I spotted the sneaks fording the river. I turned the car and stirred up the boys. Then we had a shindy and scared the dogs cold. Bagged a few, but I guess nobody croaked. Anyhow, none of our crowd. Half a dozen are after the curs. As for me, I felt as if I'd got a dum-dum in my ankle. But I'll be fit as a fiddle in a week or two. I'm afraid you had a fright." How strange it was to hear him speak so coolly after what she had endured! But his calmness quieted her. "'Mr. Van Vreck was with me,' she said. "'Van Vreck! Great Scott! Then the raid was a frame-up!' 
I see. Boys, let's get along to the house, quick. Wait an instant, the girl intervened. Night, I never had a chance to tell you about the cactus blossoms. I understood. I understand even better now. Mr. Van Vreck has made me understand. That is all I can tell you. Let them help you to the house. I'll follow. Some other time I'll explain. No, now, he said. Let go a minute, boys. I can stand by myself. Three words with my wife. As the two men moved off hastily, Annesley sprang forward, giving her shoulder for her husband's support. Lean on me, she said. Oh, Knight, you don't need an explanation, for the three words are love, love and forgiveness, forgiveness from you to me. He held out his arms and caught her to him fiercely. Neither could speak. The past was forgotten. Only the present and future counted. Both the man and woman had atoned. The End End of Chapter 26 End of the Second Latchkey By Charles Norris and Alice Muriel Williamson